want to invite you to uh, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that uh, you would meet us here in the power of your Spirit so that our eyes would be open, our ears would be opened as well. Our hearts would be soft to receive what you have to say to us. And more than anything else, we want to meet you, Lord. We want to encounter this good God we read about in the Scriptures, the one who wants to give us a new name, the one who wants to bless us, And may we encounter you today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may have noticed this is not a Mother's Day themed sermon, you know. And the reason why is because we're in a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And if you've not been here and we've taken a week off because of our retreat, so let me just give you a little bit of a briefing and a little background on the book of Revelation. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. You know, it's the kind of writing uh, that pulls back the curtain on ordinary life, and it's meant to show the realities that are hidden to our natural eyes. You know, think of Harry Potter, you know, the book series, an orphan boy who discovers at age 11 on his birthday that he is a wizard, and the curtain is pulled back to show the reality of the world he did not notice before. You know, apocalyptic literature forces you to ask the question, is it possible that there are greater realities at play in this world? And Revelation is trying to help us see the world more accurately and fully as the curtain is pulled back. The book, as we recognize, is full of symbolism. Even today, you see Jesus has a sword And we were told in chapter 1, the sword is coming out of his mouth. Next week, we're going to read that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. You know, today in our passage, we we read about Satan, his thrones, and angels. All this vivid imagery is used to describe the cosmic struggle between good and evil. But the thing you need to remember is this. The central point is Jesus is victorious. He ultimately wins, and the book begins with this, so there's nothing to be frightened about. You know, you don't have to worry. You know how the story's going to end. And the other thing that is worth remembering about Revelation is this. This is given, these words are given by the risen Christ himself. 
who comes to the Apostle John in a vision, and he tells John to write down my words and send it to the seven churches. He says that in chapter 1, verse 11. And this is one of the unique things about this letter. It is Jesus himself speaking directly to the communities he left behind. These churches he writes to are in danger in one way or another of losing their character as communities that are meant to reflect and to live out the good news of the gospel. They were lampstands. Lampstands who were in danger of losing their light. So the question is, okay, what is Jesus saying to these seven churches? And we need to listen. There's something there he wants to address, and he felt so compelled to write these letters. So today, we're going to look at the third of the seven letters, and it's to a, a church in the city of Pergamum in Asia Minor. It was a capital city, okay, a political center. It was sort of the Washington, D.C. of ancient Asia Minor. It was also a very educated city. I mean, they had a huge library of over 200,000 volumes, second only in size in the ancient world to the great library in Alexandria. I mean, they were so into learning and books, they invented this thing called parchment in Pergamum. They loved books. They loved learning. And we also know Pergamum was a very religious city. It was a central place of idol worship. The Roman emperor Domitian described Pergamum as the city of the most temples. And if you visited the city back in that day, you would see a hill behind the city that rose up like a cone, a thousand feet high. And it was filled with temples to different gods. I mean, they had a couple of notable ones to keep in mind as they had an actual altar to Zeus, the king of the gods. People from all of, over the world at that time came to the temple of Asclepius, the god of medicine. You guys might know about him. He was a serpent god of healing, right? So we see his symbol today on many, many medical societies like a staff with a, a snake wrapped around it. It's called the rod of Asclepius. People came to learn about medicine, to be healed. They sought healing. And in the center of all of this was a temple dedicated to the worship of the emperor. And it was central to the city. The city. And this is why Jesus speaks in verse 13 in this way. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus is telling this church, I know where you live. I know the pressures. You are living in a political center where the local pro-council has the power to put you to death. Where the worship of many gods are the norm. Where there's an expectation that you would bow down to Caesar. You're living amongst people who are incredibly patriotic to the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, I know your fears. I know the intensity of the temptation to give up on your faith because where you live is Satan's throne. He comes with compassion. He's not just telling the church to suck it up. He's saying, I know. You know, the emperor, uh, the mission at the time of the writing of this letter, 
he was to be addressed by anyone as my Lord and my God. That's how you started addressing the emperor. The worship of the emperor was very much a part of the culture. So all trade guilds, local businesses had some sort of gathering around the worship of the emperor. And it is to this situation Jesus comes to this church. And if you remember from Revelation 1, Jesus himself in all of his glory is sending these letters out. And in each of the letters, he gives you a little snapshot of one aspect of his glory. And in our letter, we see the sword. A sword, a double-edged sword. And in chapter 1, we're told it was coming out of his mouth with the edges that are sharp on both sides. And you know what it represents? It represents truth. The word of God. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, you might know this first in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is what the apostle Paul says. How about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and following? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, let's face it. If you get an email or a letter from someone who says, I'm the guy with a sword coming out of his mouth, okay? He obviously has something to say to us, pretty important, maybe even critical. So I want us to look at a couple of things here. First, let's look at the commendation because there is a commendation. Let's also look at the criticism and the reward that Jesus also talks about here. So think about the commendation. The commendation is all about living the truth, living the truth. The commendation comes down to this aspect of truth. Because when it came down to who Jesus was, that Jesus and Jesus alone was the Lord. Kyrios, this church was very faithful. This is what Jesus says. When it was time to worship the emperor, you had to say Kaiser Kyrios, that is Caesar is Lord, he is God. This is a church that had a reputation for standing firm and saying, no, we're not going to do that. And when it came to the great truths about Jesus... They said he is both Savior and Lord. They have been faithful. Look at verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, in, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You get a great story here about this guy named Antipas. And we are told that he held fast to the name of Jesus. He held fast to his faith in Christ. It wasn't just an intellectual thing, but it was personal. He held fast to the name of Jesus. He is being told, you had faith in me by Christ. Think about what a name represents. It's who someone is. It's who you are. And Jesus says you are not willing for any reason depart from who I am. You clung to that, and that was personal. It was beautiful. A faith commitment, and you held on to it. 
and he gives this example of Antipas. It may have been a nickname. I mean, if you break down his name, it's like anti, against, pos, people, so he's against everybody. But what we know about him from church history was that Antipas had a reputation as a Christian. And he was summoned by the Roman proconsul, where there was a large bust of the emperor, and he was told to declare Caesar's, Caesar is God. Kaiser Curious. And all he had to do was take a little bit of incense, throw it in the flame, say this, and move on, and he would have been done. But as Antipas was reflecting on this, he said, wait a second. Jesus is the Lord. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess this is true. And he was unwilling to say this. So for his refusal, he was taken put in a brass pot, slowly roasted in front of the town. And he's called my faithful witness. By the way, the word faithful witness, martis, martyr, that's the word here. Someone who is a faithful witness unto death, who is willing to hold true to the fact that this is who Jesus was, and I am not going to bend on this, that's a martyr. That's who a martyr is. Someone who bears witness to the truth of Jesus at any cost. So Jesus tells the church, you guys have done this, even in the days of Antipas. But, but, he has a criticism. This is what not living the truth is about. Because this is verse 14. Because Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. And I think this church kind of knew this was coming. They were all sweating bullets because in the first of the seven letters to the church at Ephesus, Jesus commends those in Ephesus with these words, just a few verses earlier, chapter 2, verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if you heard that and you knew what was going on in your church, I think they were a little worried. Because the truth that concerns Jesus here is not just about the truth about who he is, but the truth about what this community is to be. Because there was a group in the church here in Pergamum, probably just a small contingent, not a majority of the people, but they taught something. A lie about how to live the Christian life. These were the Nicolaitans. I'll get to that in a second. But why is this important? Because not only is Jesus Lord, but he is Lord of people he calls to be holy, to be set apart, to be Jesus' people. He said, if you're going to have me as Lord, you're going to follow me exclusively. And you're going to live the values of my kingdom and he was so serious about this, his criticism of this church is simply based on the fact that the church in Pergamum had been tolerant of Nicolaitans who deny the truth about who the church is supposed to be. And that may sound harsh to you, but let's think about the why for a second. Remember in chapter 1, Jesus stood among the seven golden lampstands which represented the seven churches Jesus is addressing. 
The churches are meant to be a light in the world, demonstrating in both word and deed with their lives the good news of the gospel. And the church's witness to the name of Jesus has been dulled by what's been taking place because of these Nicolaitans. And this is the contrast between, uh, between Antipas, whose witness is commended here. So what is it they've been tolerant of? Because there's some strange things mentioned here. Look at verse 14 and 15. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you're probably thinking, okay, who is Balaam, Balak, and who are the Nicolaitans? Let's, let's talk about this for a second. Because we learn about Balaam actually in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And some of you may be familiar with this story, but he was a prophet. He had a gift from God. But here's the thing about Balaam. He could be bought. You know? So Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, comes to Balaam and says, you know what? I'll give you silver. I'll give you gold. I'll give you anything you want if you will just go and curse Israel. Because you know what? They came out of Egypt. They're moving towards us. I need you to go curse them. So Balaam goes to Israel and tries to curse them. But God overcomes him. And Balaam ends up actually pronouncing blessings on Israel instead of a curse. So this guy's frustrated. He's like, man, I can't even do this right. I can't curse these people. It happens multiple times because God is thwarting his plans. And in one of the glorious instances in the history, uh, in the story, is while Balaam is riding on his donkey. The donkey's not going where he wants him to go, so he starts kicking his donkey. So the donkey lays down on the ground, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and he talks to Balaam. The donkey prophesies to Balaam. It's a marvelous story. And you know what God is saying in this instance? He says, I can make any dumb ass speak. (laughs) And Balaam, I just made you do it too. I made you do it. You were going to curse Israel? I made you bless them. But you would think at this point, when his donkey has prophesied, he'd probably kind of give up. But Balaam comes up with plan B because he wants what King Balak offers him. So plan B is, well, I can't curse him. God won't allow it. But here's what we do. We can send in our good-looking prostitutes. And maybe the Israelite men, they will want them, and they will lead them to love our gods, the Baals. And you know what? It worked. They sent in temporal prostitutes, and they began work to work their way through the men, and being men as morally courageous as they are, as they often can be, they said, you know what? I'm in love. I've never met anyone like this before, and I love the God of Israel, but, you know, what's a little idol worship? And when I found love. And this leads to Israel almost ceasing to exist. You can read about it in Numbers 33. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. 
And he's saying you have a similar group doing the same thing in the church, the Nicolaitans. They are teaching essentially the same thing. Just as Balaam said, we have to live in this mobile culture. What's the little idol worship, sex outside of marriage? The Nicolaitans said, we live in Pergamum. The morality of the Old Testament is a bit outdated, doesn't address our cultural moment. You know, we live in a unique time, a unique place. We need to factor that in and modernize the Christian faith. Make it a little more appealing. And besides, God is gracious. He's going to forgive us in Christ. And it wasn't just that these Christians joined in these idol feasts. They joined, that they joined in the immorality of life in the temple. But they actually defended it in the church. They're not secretly doing these things, hoping their community group leader's not going to find out. Okay? But they were actually arguing it is the right thing to do when you live in Pergamum, right? Now, lest we condemn them too quickly, we need to understand that it was not an easy thing not to get caught up in that culture. Even though it sounds all a bit strange, right? Idol worship, food, sacrifice to idols, temple prostitution. To us, it sounds so foreign, And we think of, gosh, but our culture, how easily we want to fit in and participate. Don't we all want to be normal? We all want to be liked. They were no different. They wanted this. But consider the cost they were facing. If you had a particular skill or craft and you worked in an industry, one thing that was guaranteed was this. In the Roman Empire, you would have a deity. And when you had a big gathering, maybe think about a convention where deals were made, where the people you needed to meet were going to all be there, it was usually around an idol. And what did it, what did it mean to you that you would not go to an idol feast to skip out on this convention? It probably meant you're not going to get promoted. You're not going to make partner. You're not going to get tenure. What did it mean that you were not going to the idol feast and not sleep with the temple prostitutes? It could mean you may lose your job. So those holding to the teaching of Balaam, Balak, and Nicolaitan held to a particular view of the church's place in society. The church had to survive. It had to be accepted into the modern world. It had to accommodate. You know, you, you have to change something up here. You know, this reminds me of something that happened in 1985. After losing market share to their rival Pepsi for over a decade, Coca-Cola decided the problem was not their marketing, but it was actually the formula for their soft drink, Coke itself. It's been almost a century, and the formula had not been updated. But, you know, Pepsi was now the choice of a new generation They got, like, Michael Jackson to be their spokesman. And they're saying, this is the new drink for the 80s. You know, it was, like, a big deal. So you know what they did? They said, you know, we got to improve this thing. An improved version of the drink. So they came up with a new Coke. They tweaked the formula and announced that they were retiring the original. And you know what happened when the word got out? I am not lying to you, young people. People formed lines around the supermarket because they started hoarding the original one, thinking it's going to go away. They, people were up in arms. There was a public outcry. 
Coke relented, kept the original, and called it the original. And here's the point about this. People realize when you mess with the formula, you can call it new Coke, but it's no longer Coke. You know what I'm saying? New Coke was not Coke. It was something different. It looked like it, it smelled like it, but it did not taste like it. Balaam, Nicolaitans were teaching we had to adjust the formula for Christian life. They were teaching it's possible to be part of Pergamum culture, worship idols, feast on meat sacrificed to idols, engage in sexual immorality, and still be considered faithful to Jesus because he's going to forgive you. Grace is at the center of our faith. The adjustments are going to be attractive to non-Christians and make Christianity popular. And this is essentially what they were teaching. And Jesus said, you know what the problem is? The church did not say anything was wrong with this. And he said, I have that against you. He said, I have that against you. Regardless of their rational, you know, relational stuff, they had all this stuff going on with Jesus saying, hey, we're going to be for you, I'll be martyred. But faithfulness to Jesus, no matter what, also entails, hey, we speak about what's wrong in the church. But you feel the seriousness of this? Because have you ever felt that tension these people are feeling? I'm, I'm reading about Pergamum, and I'm just like, man, that's a tough place to be. I feel the tension. I mean, what's it like at school, at work, socially? The tension to feel like you have to keep investing in something else other than your faith. Gosh, I want to give my kids the best thing possible. I don't want my kid at the end of the line. I want, I want to have them to have every opportunity academically, athletically, socially, even at the investing of their faith. I want to have it all, you see? And we feel that tension. And Jesus says, even in the midst of all of that, hey, stay true to me. Stay true to me. And the job of the church is to encourage one another here to say, we are meant to be a lampstand. We are going to speak truth to each other. We are going to encourage each other. We're going to admonish each other. We're going to grow together. And you know why this is so important to Jesus? I don't know if you've ever had someone tell a lie about you. It's one thing for someone to lie to me, but when someone tells a lie about you, you know what I'm talking about. What Jesus is saying in this letter is when people lie about me, when these people say, yeah, this is the gospel, this is good, you can go do whatever and Jesus is going to forgive you, and they perpetuate that as actually truth. Jesus says, I take that personally. That's why you have this personal vision of Jesus here. He says in verse 16, what? Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Meaning, I'm going to reveal these things, right? I'm going to show you. 
but he calls them to repentance. He's not calling them to judgment. He's saying, hey, come, change, here. I'm gracious. I want you to conquer. This is pretty serious. It's heavy. And at the same time, I don't want to end there because the strictness and the certain correction here ends also with a promise. Listen to verse 17. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He says, if you're going to repent, I'm going to give you these gifts. Jesus is speaking to Christians who have lowered their standards and saying, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. I may not be living in line with what Christ is calling me to, but he says, if you repent, I'm, I'm offering you these things. First, he says, I'll give you to eat out of the hidden pot of manna. And I didn't hear a lot of you say, oh boy, that sounds amazing, you know? What is this thing? And he says, I will also give you a white stone with a name on it. Nobody knows but me and you. What are the promises attached here? What are these things about? There's so many opinions on what each of these things are, you know? And this week, I'm like, I don't even know which one's right or wrong. But here's what I think I came up with. When you take the two together, it actually begins to mean something very specific. I think it points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9, where it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because what is this hidden manna? Why is it hidden? You know, in the Old Testament, manna fell out of the sky, but in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the manna. And in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He whoever comes to me shall not hunger. This manna is hidden unless you have eyes to see who Jesus is. See? It is hidden from those who do not see Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that feeds us and satisfies us, not this world. Not anything left in Pergamon. What about the white stone with the secret name written on it? You know, in ancient Pergamum, uh, when you were invited to a great feast at some wealthy person's home, you would be given a white stone, which was an admission ticket into that feast. The white stones were also used in court cases for juries to cast their votes. A white stone in the basket meant innocent. A dark stone meant guilty. Because we've been forgiven for our sins. Because Christians say, I begin to understand the gospel. I've been acquitted by the person and work of Jesus. He's saying, come. I want to invite you into this feast. He gives us everything necessary to enter into this feast. And what is this thing about the new name on the stone? A new name Jesus gives you, which only you know. It's so personal. It's so intimate. Why would Jesus give us a new name? Isaiah 62 your vindication, your salvation will be like a blazing torch. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You shall no longer be called forsaken. This was from our call to worship. You will be called my delight in her. God is all about changing names. 
you know? And this is why in verse 13, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. You know, if you think about the names we often give ourselves outside of the gospel, it's almost an unhelpful name. But uh, I was reminded about a story I read about years ago. Uh, the Associated Press ran a, a story about a name-changing ceremony for girls in Mumbai, India. At birth, the 285 girls had been named Nakusa or Nakushi, which means unwanted in the primary Indian language of Hindi. The name unwanted is widely given to girls across India where families often value sons much more than daughters. As a result, female babies have been aborted or neglected at an alarming rate. But the renaming ceremony was an attempt to give the girls a new identity. The article reported the 285 girls wearing their best outfits with berets, braids, and bows in their hair lined up to receive certificates with their new name, along with small flower bouquets. Some of the girls chose new names that meant prosperous, beautiful, good, or even very tough. One girl who had, who had been named Nakusa by her grandfather, who was disappointed in her birth, said, now in school, my classmates and friends will be calling me by this new name. And that makes me very happy. I mean, it's a beautiful story. I'm getting choked up reading it again. But how many of us walk around in the same way, believing I'm unwanted, unloved, uncared for, nakusa? And here's what the gospel of Jesus says. That is a lie. That's not the truth about you. You're not unwanted. Jesus gives you a new name. No longer forsaken, you are my delight. He says we are his sons and his daughters. As he's inviting us into this feast, and he's saying, go, church, show the world what people who believe this to be true, how they are to live, so they can see God Praise him and glorify him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that this morning um, you would remind us that these promises that you give us are not anything we earn, but it's actually a reflection of your kindness and grace to us. And you call your church to go out as people who are made new, put together into a new family to show the world what it's like to live resurrected life together. May we be a people that honor you and reflect your values, your kingdom, love for neighbor, compassion, kindness, faithfulness. Help us to be a community, Lord that more and more reflects your love and your kindness to us. We ask that you would transform us in this way and give us hope. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.